person, the second person of the Trinity, whom John calls the Logos. Last week, we finished our discussion of the first communication of graces. We saw that all the gifts that are communicated to the humanity from his divine nature uh, and through the Holy Spirit, right, such as that he has given gifts beyond his natural capacities as a man, not making him a superman, but a super gifted man, we could say. Um, Let me see here. Today, or I'm sorry, after that, we moved on to discuss the second communicatio, what I said was the most famous or well-known one, the communication of attributes or properties. If you remember, I said in the first one, if you have the, from your guys' side, the divinity of Christ here and the humanity of Christ and the person here, in the first communication, what's being communicated, the gifts and the graces are coming from the deity to the humanity. Okay, it's, it's a communication this way. In the second one, communication of properties, it's from the natures, respectively, up to the person. Okay? Um, <clears throat> to clarify even further, when we speak of the communication of attributes, the properties of each nature are not only communicated upward to the person, okay, that's true, but they are not communicated to each nature. Okay, we clarify that. They go up, um, but they don't really go across, um, technically speaking. In other words, the properties of one nature are not passed on to the other. Infinity is not passed on to the finite. If you were to do that, you would lose the distinction between the two natures. Um, You would essentially be denying that part of our confession of faith, which says that the two natures of Christ are united together without conversion, composition, or confusion, and particularly uh, conversion, because by communicating one nature to the other, you're converting the other nature into the first nature, and confusion, because you're losing the distinction. Now, although the properties of one nature are not truly passed on to the other, yet sometimes we may use a manner of speaking which speaks as though they are. The Bible does this. If you remember, Turretin called this an indirect way of speaking, right? Uh, Instead of predicating a divine attribute to the person, uh, you predicate it or ascribe it to the humanity, the human nature. Instead of predicating something of the human nature to the person, you predicate it of the divine nature. We saw Christ himself do this when speaking of his humanity as the Son of Man, said that he was once in eternity past with the Father, which as a human he wasn't, but their eternality, if you will, was like spoken of, predicated of his humanity. And it's just a matter of speaking. On the other hand, sometimes um, this indirect kind of predication happens in the other direction, and an attribute of the human nature of Christ is predicated or ascribed to the divine nature of Christ, as when Paul says that the church was purchased by the blood human blood of God. In both cases, we do not mean that a property of one nature has been passed on to the other nature truly, but rather, because of the hypostatic union, because the two natures are united to the person, as a manner of speech, it is perfectly acceptable to speak that way, and even biblical and apostolic. Now, before we ended... That last to- that topic last week, 
I said that the doctrine of the communication of properties brings us to a very important topic. Um, it's theologically but also historically significant. Um, and this is kind of interesting because this is October, so we're coming up to the uh, um, anniversary of the Reformation, and this is very much Reformation history. Um, and it explains um, why we are not sovereign joy <coughs> Lutheran Baptist Church, per se, um, and vice versa, I guess you could say. It, it, it gives us, helps us to understand that. Um, this topic is the difference that the Reformed have in the Reformed understanding of the communication of properties and the Lutheran understanding of the doctrine. We have a different doctrine, slightly different doctrine than they do, okay? To put this in context, we need to understand first the main difference or the sticking point when it came to the division between the Lutherans and the Reformed tradition, or early on, especially between Martin Luther and Ulrich Swingley, the Zurich reformer. That sticking point was the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper. In particular, the controversy was over how we understood the words of Christ when he said concerning the bread, this is my body, right? Latin, hocus corpus meum. That's where people get hocus pocus from, right? There's another October fun fact for you. Going back to the doctrine of Rome, Rome held to the doctrine of transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine were transubstantiated, or you could say turned into the body and blood of Christ. In other words, the bread was normal bread before the priest prayed over it, but after he did, the bread was transformed truly into the flesh of Christ and likewise the wine into the blood. Now, Rome used an Aristotelian, a philosophical distinction between what's called substance and accidents. Okay, by accidents, we don't mean like I got into a car accident, okay? That's not how the term is used. Um, the difference between substance and accidents is this. The substance of something is that which, if you take it away, it is no longer itself, okay? Think of it this way. We could say that, in a sense, the substance of a bachelor, what makes a bachelor a bachelor, is his singleness, once he's married, you've taken away his singleness. Can he be called a bachelor anymore? Well, no. No, that's the, the definition of a bachelor is a single person, okay? An accident is something that you can take away, but the substance still remains. So if a dog gets its tail cut off, is it still a dog? Is the tail of the dog the substance of a dog, such that once you remove it, it is no longer a dog. No, not at all, right? Um, and so you can kind of understand um, what I mean by that. Now, when it came to the argument of the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, Roman Catholics argued that the bread truly became in substance the flesh of Christ, but in its form or its accidents, it still looked like bread, felt like bread, tasted like bread, smelt like bread. Um, but despite the appearances, right, it was truly the body and blood of Christ. And likewise, the wine became the blood of Christ. That's the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation. <clears throat> well, Luther comes along, and while he didn't totally break with Rome in their understanding of the Lord's Supper, as we'll see, um, 
On the other hand, his disagreement with them was not as sharp as the Reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper. Luther rejected the distinction, at least in the Supper, concerning substances and accidents. And therefore, he rejected the Roman doctrine of the Lord's Supper. He wrote in 1520, so three years after nailing the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg Castle door, he wrote his famous work, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Do you know what he means by Babylonian there? The Catholic. Babylon, the beast, the whore. That's, that's Babylon. The Roman captivity of the church, okay? And he says this. Transubstantiation must be regarded as a figment of the human mind, for it rests neither on the scripture nor on reason. He continues. Therefore, it is absurd and an unheard of juggling of words to understand bread to mean the form or accidents of bread and wine to mean the form or accidents of wine. Why do they not also understand all other things to mean their form and accidents? And even if this might be done with all other things, it might still not be right to enfeeble the words of God in this way and by depriving them of their meaning to cause so much harm. So it seems to me that <coughs> what Luther's doing here, what he's saying, um, he's rejecting this idea of a change of substance, that the bread has become the body of Christ. Um, for him, if it looks like bread, smells, tastes, feels, sounds like bread, it's bread, okay? Um, and so he rejects that, that whole thing. Nevertheless, he did believe that the physical body of Christ, the actual body of Christ, was present in the bread. This is called the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the supper, to some degree that his body and blood were truly there. Luther's main argument for that is simply to say, the word of God says so, right? Christ says, this is my body. Luther would almost say, how much clearer can he be? He's saying this is his body, right? Um, someone might accuse him of being too simplistic, but for him, it's not being simplistic. It's a mystery, not to be comprehended necessarily, but to be confessed and believed. Um, he acknowledges that, and he's fine with it. He writes, <clears throat> For my part, I cannot understand how the bread is the body of Christ, yet I will take my reason captive, captive to the obedience of Christ, and clinging simply to his words, firmly believe that the body of Christ is not only in the bread, but that the bread is the body of Christ. Now, notice here, he rejected just a moment ago that the bread becomes the body of Christ, right? And yet, he also says that the bread truly is the body of Christ, right? Isn't that transubstantiation, we would say, for Luther? Luther would say that Christ is in the bread. Uh, other people call this consubstantiation, not transubstantiation, not changing of the substance, but consubstantiation, a withness, withness of the substance. And the other uh, prepositional prepositions that are used are in, with, and under. The body of Christ is in, with, and under the bread. Um, Luther would say, listen to how he describes this. Luther would say that Christ is in the bread, so much so that you can say his body is the bread. He writes, 
And why could not Christ include his body in the substance of the bread just as well as in the accidents? In red-hot iron, for instance, the two substances, fire and iron, are so mingled that every part is both iron and fire. Why is it not even more possible that the body of Christ be contained in every part of the substance of the bread? So you see for him, if you're looking in the bread, right, there are two substances, Christ's flesh and the bread. The bread hasn't become the flesh, um, but when the minister prays, Christ's presence is with the bread, so much so it's in the substance of the bread that the bread can be said to be Christ, okay? Now, I think at the end of the day for Luther, it's a mystery not to be pried into between making a distinction between um, substance and accidents, and I think they would accuse the Reformed maybe of being too rationalistic on this. You guys are trying to understand this too much, okay? Um, but it's to be, under, to be believed and partaken of. It should also be added that while Luther believes that we truly eat the flesh of Christ in the supper, this is not without spiritual nourishment. In fact, he would say that's the main point. Um, It is a spiritual eating. It is a spiritual nourishment. But for Luther, it can only be spiritual and of spiritual benefit because the flesh of Christ is truly in the bread. Um, If that were not the case for Luther, you couldn't have the spiritual nourishment. Um, At the end of the day, Christ said that this is his body, and that seems to be enough for Luther. Well, here comes Ulrich Zwingli, the reformer from Zurich. Zwingli was not comfortable, and, and others were not comfortable, with saying that the body of Christ was present in the bread, or it was the bread. For him, this was not really about substance and accidents, but clearly the bread was symbolic symbolic of the body of Christ, and the wine was symbolic of the blood of Christ. Zwingli's view is often referred to today as the memorial view of the Lord's Supper. Memorial meaning a remembrance, right? Do this in remembrance of me. Is that what it says? Does it say there? The memorial view, right? And everyone would agree there's a sense in which we're (coughs) memorializing the Lord's death, but that's what it's called. Um, Now, I'm not super familiar with Zwingli's view, but I've heard a good argument that even Zwingli perhaps did not hold to what Zwingli is said to have held to, uh, the memorial view. At least if you read him fully, um, he's much more complicated than just saying it's a symbol and we're just remembering, right? Sometimes it's described that way. Nothing spiritual is happening. There's no spiritual nourishment as there is for Luther. It's just a memorial, okay? Um, at least by the end of his life, I don't think he held that. Um, we'll, we'll look into that. What I did find, though, is a quote from Zwingli later on in his life in which he says that the body is present in the supper, but in a spiritual manner. We do eat the flesh of Christ, but we eat it spiritually, not physically. He wrote in a letter to the French King Francis toward the end of, end of his life, We believe that Christ is truly present in the Lord's Supper. Yes, we believe that there is no communion without the presence of Christ. This is the proof where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them, Matthew 18, 20. How much more is he present where the whole congregation is assembled to this honor? 
but that his body is literally eaten is far from the truth and the nature of faith. It is contrary to the truth because he himself says, I am no more in the world, John 17, 11. And the flesh profiteth nothing, John 6, 63. That is to eat as the Jews then believed and the papists still believe. It is contrary to the nature of faith, I mean the holy and true faith, because faith embraces love, fear of God, and reverence, which abhor such carnal and gross eating, as much as anyone would shrink from eating his beloved son. We believe that the true body of Christ is eaten in the communion in a sacramental and spiritual manner by the religious, believing, and pious heart, also St. Chrysostom taught. And this is in brief the substance of what we maintain in this controversy, and what not we, but the truth itself teaches. So for, Luther, for, for Zwingli, is Christ present in the supper? Yes, but how he is present is the big difference. He is present, but in a spiritual manner. Now, in many ways, what I just read, you could say is, tr- is an accurate description of the Reformed view of the presence of Christ. If you have your confession, look at chapter 30. Chapter 30 of the Lord's Supper. Supper. We're going to look at paragraph 5. Chapter 30, paragraph 5. Here we see, first, the rejection of transubstantiation. It says, The outward elements in this ordinance, the bread and the wine, duly set apart to the use ordained by Christ, have such relation to him crucified as that truly although in terms used figuratively, they are sometimes called by the names of the things they represent, to wit, the body and blood of Christ, albeit in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. So how is the bread and the wine the body and blood of Christ? They would say, figuratively speaking. Uh, And yet, sometimes we speak about them as though they were. We call them by the very names of the things that they represent. But it clarifies they don't actually change in nature. If you want to have an example of this, um, God says to Moses, you will be as God to Pharaoh, right? Um, Moses will have so much of God's authority and power that it's as though God himself were speaking um, to, to Pharaoh, Uh, Moses represents God. He's a representative. His presence there is, I guess you could say, representative or uh, figurative. Um, And yet sometimes we speak very clearly as though he were God himself. And that's what they're saying here. We speak and call them the body and blood of Christ, yet we understand this is spiritual and figurative. Um, So, are the bread and wine truly the the body and blood of Christ? Yes, but figuratively so. We would not say that the body of Christ is physically present in the supper, but spiritually. Nevertheless, uh, and I think many Protestants today would probably be uncomfortable with this, but in the Reformed view, we say that we truly feed on the body of Christ and find spiritual nourishment in the Lord's Supper. Perhaps you've noticed when I pray Sometimes I'll pray at the beginning of the Lord's Supper and say, Lord, would you enable us by faith to feed on the body and blood of Christ? I pray that way, right? To many Protestant ears, that sounds Roman Catholic or Lutheran, and yet it's very Reformed um, to feed. There is a spiritual nourishment 
Um, I don't totally understand, but we feed by faith. Um, and it's encouraging. This is not just a memorial, but there's something that, that's an upbuilding that takes place in this ordinance. Okay? Um, for example of this, look at paragraph 7 of chapter 30. Paragraph 7 of chapter 30. It says, Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this ordinance, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death, the body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. Um, So yes, we do, in a sense, feed spiritually on the body and blood of Christ, yet it's in a spiritual manner by faith. Um, He's not here physically in these elements. Um, Well, when we get to chapter 30 studying the confession, whenever that, whenever that happens, we can unpack that a bit further. But that's a difference between the Lutheran and Reformed understanding of the Supper. Historically speaking, Lutheran Zwingli and many other prominent Reformers, uh, Martin Bootser was another one, Oikolampadius, they all met in 1529, 12 years after, 1517 in Nailing, in the German town of Marburg, Uh, And their meeting was referred to as the Marburg Colloquy. A colloquy is a fancy name that means a discussion um, or or a dispute, perhaps, of theological matters. (coughs) This colloquy was specifically an attempt to unite the two sides of the Reformers, the Lutherans and the Reform, because not just theologically were they under attack from Rome, but politically it was more important that they be united together from the threat of a military attack from Catholic nations, right? They stood a better chance um, of standing together instead of being wiped out one by one. In the end, however, sadly, there was no real union, and the main sticking point was the issue of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's presence in the Supper. The members of the colloquy produced a document called the Marburg Articles in which they gave 14 articles, on which they agreed. But they said in the 15th, this is what they said. Regarding the supper of our beloved Lord Jesus Christ, we all believe and maintain that we should make use of both kinds, meaning bread and wine, and that the mass is not a good work with which a person attains grace for another, whether alive or dead. Also, the sacrament of the altar is a sacrament of the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. And the spiritual reception of this body and blood is particularly necessary for every sacrament, for every Christian. Similarly, the use of the sacrament, like the word, is given and ordained by God Almighty um, so that weak consciences might be moved to faith through the Holy Spirit. And then they say this. Although we have not at this time agreed whether the true body and blood of Christ are bodily in the bread and wine... Each side is able to display Christian love to the other as far as conscience allows. allows. Both sides are praying diligently to Almighty God that he would confirm us in the right understanding through his spirit. Amen. So they say we disagree on whether he's bodily there or not, and yet we're able to love one another. 
Um, they speak of brotherly love there, um, but things got particularly nasty between Lutherans and Reformed. This was a significant falling out, and in many cases there was no love loss at all. Zwingli later died in battle, um, fighting with other Protestants against Roman Catholic forces. Luther saw that as the judgment of God, and in fact, he didn't believe that Zwingli was saved. For Luther, and I think this is part of it, he sees that a denial of the physical presence in the supper was almost, in a sense, a denial of Christ. It was kind of tantamount to that. He later wrote, I wish from my heart that Zwingli could be saved, but I fear the contrary. For Christ has said that those who deny him shall be banned. (coughs) God's judgment is sure and certain. And we may safely pronounce it against all the ungodly, unless God reserve unto himself a peculiar privilege and dispensation. Now, I think Zwingli was saved very much. I really like Zwingli, actually. He's a great, I, I love him. He's, he's great. Um, but you can see things got very spicy between the two sides. Um, I think another term that the Lutherans called the Reformed were crafty sacramentarians. I have a friend who's, uh, he's, going to be a, he's a Dutch reform minister. He's planning a church. And his Instagram is crafty sacramentarian. Okay, it was kind of this, ha you crafty sacramentarians, you. Um, well, what does all this have to do with the communication of properties, right? This is, after all, a discussion uh, of Christology and not the Lord's Supper per se. Well, with all fairness to the Lutherans, and I do, I do want to be fair to them, I believe that their understanding of the communication of properties is driven by their understanding of the Lord's Supper. Let me explain what I mean by that. Zwingli and others had argued Christ could not be physically present in the supper because his body was located at the right hand of the Father in heaven. In fact, as we saw, Zwingli pointed to John 17, 11, where Jesus said, I am no longer in the world, meaning very soon he was going to leave the world to go and ascend and be with the Father. The Lutherans, on the other hand, in their understanding of the communication of properties, argue, this is important, that in the communication of attributes, because Christ's humanity is truly united to his divinity in the person, that there is a real communication of attributes from the divinity to the humanity of Christ. Whereas we would say it's a manner of speaking, but not truly a passing on, they would say it is real, and in particular, the omnipresence, the omnipresence of God, such that the flesh of Christ becomes omnipresent. They argue that Christ, uh, I'm sorry, because of this, the Reformed call the Lutherans ubiquitarians. Ubiquitarians. You've heard of the term ubiquitous. What does ubiquitous mean? It's everywhere, right? Ubique in Latin means everywhere. So the Reformed call them the everywhere ones. You ubiquitarians believe that Christ's flesh is everywhere. Now, not only does that sound problematic, biblically speaking, but theologically, I would argue, that is a bit of blending of the two natures, right? You're losing a distinction. Christ's humanity is omnipresent in a way that our humanity is not. Um, Because of that, the Reformed have accused the Lutherans of being Eutychians. What did Eutyches believe? Who can tell me? 
Eutyches. What's that? What? Um, not quite. Dude, your wife just totally slaughtered you. Yes, Jesus' humanity was essentially swallowed up by his divinity. It, it overwhelmed it in such a sense um, that there was this blurring of the two natures, okay? And so the reform called the Lutherans Eutychians because the omnipresence of the divine nature is passed on to the human nature. Now, are the Lutherans heretics? Absolutely they are. I'm just kidding. They're not heretics. Um, if there were Lutherans in here, that would be a lot funnier. Um, but there's not. No. But it seems that in their doctrine of the supper and of the um, communication of attributes, it pushes them in a Eutychian direction. In fact, I was thinking this the other day. You know, Wilhelmus Abrockel goes so far to almost push in a Nestorian direction. I wonder if he's responding to the Lutherans in this. I can't prove that. He doesn't say that. But he may be overreacting against the Lutheran position there. Now, maybe you're wondering, um, how could the Lutherans think something like that? Lutherans are not dumb. They're not uninformed. Um, why would they reason this way? They obviously have a reason for it. Um, well, they would say this, and I'm quoting Richard Mullard here. He says, this is what they would say. There is no place where the logos is present and not also united to the human nature. There is no place where the logos is present and not also united to the human nature. Since the logos is omnipresent, the human nature must be everywhere with the logos, or more precisely, the logos, by virtue of its own omnipresence, which has been communicated to the human nature, has the human nature illocally, meaning not locally, present to it everywhere. Now, it says there that Christ's body is illocally. Okay, what do we mean by that? Well, it's almost as though it's saying not physically, right? I, I am locally located here, okay? Um, they're saying it's omnipresent, but not in the sense that it's physically there, okay? It's, that's, that's where it starts getting a little weird. Um, Muller explains this elsewhere in his definition of ubiquity. He writes, ubiquity is specifically the illocal, supernatural presence of Christ's human nature resulting from the communion of natures and communi communication of properties in the persons of Christ, person of Christ. The Lutheran Orthodox argue that this ubiquity is not a spatial or local ubiquity, such as might characterize an infinitely extended material substance. Okay? When we think of space, space is a thing. It's spread out over all of creation, right? They're not saying his body becomes spread out like that, okay? Um, and yet, in a spiritual manner, it is always united to the Logos, which is omnipresent, and so it's omnipresent as well. Um, they would say this. They describe this in this, this term. The Logos is never apart from the flesh, the Logos, which is omnipresent, is never apart from the flesh. And so we'd say, so are you saying 
Christ's humanity is omnipresent everywhere? And they would say yes, because it's united to the Logos, which is omnipresent. So is Christ's humanity on Mars right now? Well, not locally, physically present, but it is everywhere united with the Logos. And if we were to say, well, you're destroying the nature of Christ's humanity, you're, you're passing on that, they would say, no, you are the ones who are dividing the persons. Because if he's truly united to the Logos, which is everywhere, he must also be present. Um, the flesh must also be present with the Logos. Um, you can see why they argue that. Um, well, hold on. What would we say to this? Um, is the Logos everywhere united to the flesh of humanity? Or, sorry, to the flesh of Christ? Yeah, I mean, in a sense, um, the Logos, the divine nature, is everywhere. We could say he's in Saturn. Is that part of the Logos, if you could call it the part, right? It's not a part, but is that Logos there in Saturn united to the flesh of Christ? Yes, absolutely. I don't think we would deny that in any sense. Um, well, then, why would we not say that his body is not also there in a supernatural sense? Um, hold on, I got a little lost in my, in my notes here. Um, let, before we go there, <laughs> I started explaining something before I should have. Um, the, the Reformed would say this. Reformed would say this. Their response to the Logos is not apart from the flesh is to say, yes, the Logos is everywhere, it's omnipresent, and it is everywhere united to Christ, but it cannot be contained in the flesh of Christ. Um, the omnipresent cannot be contained in the present, okay? Um, the, the Reformed mocked that, and they called it the extra Calvinisticum, um, the outside Calvinisticum, okay? Um, you're saying that the Logos is out there somewhere where they would say the Logos is never apart from the flesh, right? They would say, you guys are arguing the Logos is somewhere out there, this extra Calvinisticum, uh, the uh, Calvinistic extra. Muller writes, the Calvinistic extra is a term used by the Lutherans to ref refer to the Reformed insistence on the utter transcendence of the second person of the Trinity in and during the Incarnation. The Reformed argue that the Logos is fully united, but never totally contained within the human nature. And therefore, even in the Incarnation, is to be conceived of as beyond or outside, extra, the human nature. So we say, yes, the humanity of Christ is fully united to the Logos, to the deity of Christ. But that doesn't mean that the deity of Christ or any of its attributes can be passed on to the humanity. It, it can't contain them without destroying them. Muller continues, in response to the Calvinistic extra, the Lutherans taught the maxim, logos non extra carnum, the word is not beyond the flesh. He summarizes, it is clear that the so-called extra Calvinisticum is not the invention of Calvinists, but is a Christological concept safeguarding both the transcendence of Christ's divinity and the integrity of Christ's humanity, known to and used by the fathers of the first five centuries, including Athanasius and Augustine. 
So here, Mueller takes off the gloves. Now, Mueller is reformed, of course, but he comes out kind of swinging. And he says, no, this is not a Calvinistic extra. This is just orthodoxy. Um, and, and you're blurring the distinction between the two natures by saying omnipresence is passed on to the flesh. Um, I had a, a professor uh, in seminary who said, it's not the extra Calvinisticum, it's the extra Catholicum, meaning... This is just the Catholic universal faith. This is not a Calvinistic thing. This is just orthodoxy, okay? Now, listen to what Muller says here. This is interesting. It's clear that the polarization of Lutheran and Reformed Christologies owed much to the debate over the mode of Christ's presence in the supper. Against the Lutherans, the Reformed interpreted the extra-Calvinisticum in terms of the phrase, the finite is incapable of the infinite. In other words, the finite humanity is incapable of receiving or grasping infinite attributes such as omnipresence, omnipotence, or omnipresence. Well, that's, that's the history of the debate right there. Coming into um, the history of the Reformation, it's kind of interesting. Um, it, it sounds perhaps a bit extraneous. You know, at what point um, <coughs> was this a point at which we... Um, depart from the Lutherans over this, right? Um, in, in, in many ways, we're saying so much together than we are apart. Um, but again, I think it's helpful to push through this, and it helps us to historically understand the division between Lutherans and Reformed. Um, the Reformed after this would kind of, the Reformed tradition would really start its own kind of path and, and really break in many ways from Lutherans and the divide would kind of grow larger over time. Um, you know, if I could play devil's, advocates, devil's advocate here to the Lutherans, I would say this. Um, you know, I reread my notes from seminary on this, and one of my professors, uh, this is what he said. This is, this is like his quote. It seems that their doctrine of the Lord's Supper is driving this part of Christology. Okay. They so wanted to argue that Christ was physically present in the bread. And Zwingli says, well, he can't be because he's physically present at the right hand of the Father. But they would say, no, no, the Logos is never apart from the flesh. The flesh is omnipresent supernaturally. So, yes, he can be in the bread, right? Um, but my professor says it seems like it's the doctrine of the supper that is driving their argument in Christology. And then I said this. I wrote this, and I think this is what he said. They don't like to hear that. Meaning, no one wants to hear, well, I'm only arguing this way because I'm trying to keep this other thing in line here, right? Um, for them, well, no, not only is their doctrine of the Lord's Supper biblical, but so also is their Christology. We get these things from Scripture. It's not driven by anything, they would argue, right? Um, now, to be fair... Um, I'm sure they would argue that we are changing our Christology to fit our doctrine of the Lord's Supper as well. Um, if Christ's flesh is not omnipresent, then it really gets rid of the idea that his flesh is physically present here in the Supper, right? Um, uh, but, where did my eighth page go? Well, it went somewhere. Um, if I could play devil's advocate with them, I would say this. Why just omnipresence? <laughs> if your doctrine is not truly driven 
by the Lord's Supper, why just omnipresence? Well, omnipresence fits their purposes of arguing that Christ's flesh can be physically present in the Supper. But why not omnipotence, right? Um, Couldn't we argue that because of the union, because the the word is never apart from the flesh, um, was Christ's humanity, did he have all power? Could he have lifted up a mountain just by his physical strength, right? And if they say no, you say, why not? The logos is not apart from the flesh, right? Um, Furthermore, the attributes never go backwards. They just go forward from divine to human. Um, Why isn't there a mixing of the two? Um, And so with respect to our Lutheran brothers and sisters, we would uh, depart from them on this issue and uh, it's perhaps a bit extraneous, but it is historical. It explains a lot of things, and it's helpful to think through, um, to think through their arguments. You know, the Logos is everywhere omnipresent, and it is even there united to the flesh. Does that mean that the flesh is present there as well? We say no. It's fully united, but the Logos cannot be fully contained within the flesh either. Okay? Um, well, that's... It for that. Uh, any questions before we move on? Any thoughts? Complaints? You missed the whole thing, Jeremy. I'm sorry. Um, we'll get into that in a second. We're going to get into the incarnation specifically. The, the incarnation, what we'll see, is it's not a changing of substance. Um, we say the word became flesh, right? But what we mean by that specifically is the word took on flesh. So it's not um, a changing of substance, nor is it a subtraction. He became less than he was, immutable, but he took on its addition. He took on also human nature, united that to his person. So um, his humanity is not omnipresent. And yet in order to take that on, he didn't have to delete his omnipresence on his divine side. They both exist at the same time, united to the person, um, which is a mystery. So I can't, that part I can't really... I mean, at the end of the day, it is something to be confessed and believed, right? Um, so, yeah, but we will get more specifically into the incarnation itself in a couple weeks. Any other questions? I would encourage you, you know, when I, when I, when I first learned of the Reformed understanding of the Supper, the Lord's Supper did become much more beautiful and encouraging to me. There's a sense in which... Um, we don't comprehend it, and these things symbolically represent the body and blood of Christ, but it's not a mere memorial. Um, Christ gave these things to us as a means of grace, and by faith we partake of them. Um, I try to remember that. This is not just me putting this bread into my mouth. By faith, in a manner I don't totally comprehend, I'm spiritually feeding upon Christ and drinking um, his blood, and it has spiritual benefits to me. Um, if you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with laziness or, or temptation, you need that spiritual strength. 
Um, see the Lord's Supper as truly a means of grace. Lord, empower me. Give me spiritual nourishment through this um, by faith. We don't eat the physical body and blood of Christ, um, and yet there is spiritual nourishment in it. Okay? Well, if there's no other questions, you guys are dismissed, and uh, I will see you back here shortly.